Welcome to The Coaching Podcast, Coach for Success in Sport and Business. G'day everybody and welcome to The Coaching Podcast. My name's Emma Doyle. I'm here with Oliver Luck. I've heard so much about this incredible man, amazing journey. We'll jump straight into it, Oliver. The first question is the Vegemite question, the Australian spread. With that smile, I'm, I'm not sure whether you've tried it or not. You either love it or you strongly dislike it. What, what's your take on Vegemite? So uh, I, I lived in Europe for 10 years and you can get you know, Vegemite over in London, which is where we lived for a couple of years, my wife and I and our kids. And then my brother-in-law married an Aussie. Uh, you know, she was from Perth. So, you know, I flew halfway around the world to get to the wedding. So I've had it a couple of times. Uh, I'll be honest, if it were the last food in the world, I don't think I would enjoy it. I, I just, I just don't. So that's just my taste. <laughs> thank you for your honesty and thank you for trying it. I love that. In which case, because you answered that way, our follow-up question is, could you share a coaching moment? I know that you've got an amazing playing background, so either as a player or as an AD, um, athletic director, or as a, as a coach yourself. Can you share a moment that didn't go well? And what might be some of the lessons? Does one come to mind? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a litany of, of mistakes that administrators make all the time, you know, in terms of uh, hiring and firing coaches. And of course, coaches make mistakes all the time as well in terms of strategy and their selection of players and motivations, whatever. Uh, I, I don't know if this is my worst mistake ever, but I, I do remember dismissing, if you will, you know, firing in good old American English, a, a wrestling coach uh, who I think was taken aback by that. He had been uh, at, at this institution for many, many years. And like a lot of wrestlers, you know, he was a, a small, very compact guy and, and had a good career, but just sort of faded significantly in his later years. And he, he all of a sudden gave me the finger in the chest, right? And he was pointing, <laughs> and I thought he was going to take me down you know, and pin me and, uh, you know, I don't know, do what, you know, choke me or something. <laughs> for, for like a second, I thought I, there might be a physical altercation and he would have won. You know, yep. I mean? yep. you know I'm, yep. I'm just a quarterback. We, we don't, we don't get, a, we don't get into the melee, as they say. So, uh, but anyway, there's, I'm, that's one of many probably yeah, you know, yeah. decisions or bad moments that I had. With yeah, yeah, yeah. Fabulous. And what about on the flip side? What about something that really, really went well? And, and maybe what are some of the insights that, that you had after that experience? Well, I, I was lucky enough as a college athletic director to uh, be in a position that not many athletic directors are, which is to add a sport, right? And this, in this case, it was a men's sport, which is even more unusual. You know, many programs have added women's sports over the years to, you know, keep uh, compliant with Title IX, et cetera, which is you know, one of the great laws in American history. I guess we're what, 45 years, almost maybe 50 years into it. But mm. we, we were able to add a men's sport <clears throat> and we had a, a limited number of them. Long story short, uh, we added men's golf. That's a sport that we had had at this institution back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and it was dropped. For whatever reason, it was dropped back in the 80s. So to go back and raise money, because that's what athletic directors have to do, to go back to the former golfers who had graduated in the 60s or the 70s or the 80s and tell them that their sport was being reinstated at the university and that we you know, needed to, to raise money to endow the, I forget how many scholarships in men's golf, four and a half, five, I don't know, maybe even less, 
So it wasn't that much money, but to ask them, uh, you know, for contributions to have all those scholarships endowed so that they could never be taken away in the future, right? That money had to be spent on NCAA varsity, you know, men's golf. That was, that was cool. Mm-hmm. And some of these older guys, you know, who began to reminisce about their, you know, their, their days as students playing golf on the golf team, you know, they brought a tear to their eye because they had never sort of dreamed that their sport would be back, you know, uh, in the, in the portfolio, so to speak. So that was, that was really cool. And these guys were, you know, golfers are, uh, you know, come from a pretty good, you know, sort of socioeconomic class, right? Mm-hmm. So these guys were all federal judges, publishers of newspapers. I mean, these were pretty successful men, mm. no surprise. Uh, and for them to get sort of teary-eyed and very, uh, you know, what's the right word, uh, very soft about this, this, uh, it was that was that was fun. That was one of the better experiences I had. I love going on those calls because not only were we raising money, but you know, we really got to sort of build that bridge that mm. had been broken for 40 years to a sport that those guys all still love. They all, you know, still play golf. Yeah. And I, I love that just around helping people stay connected to sport and what sport can do and athletics in America can do, you know, beyond, beyond the sport as well. I really, I really love that. Thanks for sharing. The next question is the sliding doors question. Sure. So, I mean, the, the probably biggest shift for me, you know, was back in, in the, the early, or I guess, 1990. Uh, I you know, uh, played professional football, graduated from college, played professional football for a number of years, uh, went to law school at the University of Texas, was working as a lawyer, as, as was my wife. Uh, and we were living in Washington, D.C. We had one son, Andrew, who is, is the oldest of, of our four kids. He was just a baby. And I got a call from the National Football League asking if I would be interested in becoming, uh, you know, an executive uh, in Germany for their fledgling league, their brand new league, which they then called World League of American Football, soon to be called NFL Europe. Um, I speak German. My mother was born and raised there. So, you know, we, we my siblings um, and I all to various degrees you know, understand the language. And, you know, so we basically picked up, right, my wife and I picked up, you know, threw our uh, one-year-old in the, you know, the car seat, so to speak, and, you know, and, and hightailed it over to Europe. And we ended up spending 10 years, three of the uh, kids were born over there, the other three, if you will. And that was a fantastic experience, yeah. not just, you know, in terms of business, right, you know, building of a league, uh, in a, you know, for a sport that the Europeans really had no idea about, uh, but also just living over there, you know, visiting Paris and, you know, the Eastern Bloc and Italy and Spain, you name it, you know, all the travel that we did, that was uh, special. And that was really my first job in the sports business. Mm. And I think I enjoyed it so much and enjoyed the experience that, you know, I, I said to myself, well, I can make a career, you know, in the sports business. Mm. And, and that's more or less what I've done. So that, that call, that phone call uh, probably put me on that particular path. And at that point, I really hadn't been thinking at all about a career mm-hmm. in the sports business. You know, lawyers didn't really go into the sports business back in the 1990s, even MBAs. And it was a, it was a different industry. It's, you know, it's exploded since then with television and, yep. you know, all the other streaming and sponsorships and all the other sort of business parts of, of, uh, you know, sports. But uh, that, that was a big moment. Certainly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing. And I'm assuming the rest of your children probably had some pretty good passports going on, <laughs> being born <laughs> over there. Been, and 
they've been they've been around you know two the two girls were born in germany in Wiesbaden, yeah. which is just outside of frankfurt uh, our youngest son uh, was born up in uh, in london you know yeah yeah uh, so yeah they've they've been all over the place and you know that yeah. if you raise kids overseas you might experience this yourself you know mm-hmm. they they tend to view the world as their backyard right they don't hesitate yeah. about you know going somewhere and yeah. you know, living over you know, overseas for a while or yeah. marrying a you know a someone outside of the u.s right mm-hmm. there's two of the kids did so yeah it's mm. it's um yeah singing to my philosophy definitely <laughs> yeah the world is such a small place and we're all connected i mean you aussies are great with your walkabouts and, yeah you know, going yep. all over the place and yeah you know that, i love that and that's a great sort of yeah. cultural thing that it uh, is i wish we had yeah. more of that in this country you know yeah we're such a big country yeah and, and so diverse but you know Mm. Uh, there, there are two things that I'm passionate about. One is history and the past, and the other is is travel, right? And you know, seeing different places and you know, developing a sensitivity to how things can be done differently. Mm. Uh, it reminds me of that famous quote that I use all the time, which is, "The past is a foreign country, semicolon. They do things differently there." <laughs> so if you study the past, you realize that things were done differently 150 years ago or whatever. And if you study the present, you realize, you know, outside of the U.S., they might do things differently. Healthcare mm. might be handled differently mm. you know, in Europe or Australia or you know, mm-hmm. China or wherever. Uh, I, so th- those are two things that I really feel uh, passionate about. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing. Our next question is in one to a maximum of three words. What do you think makes a great coach? Uh, so I, if I had to pick three words, it's hard to pick you know, just one. Uh, yeah. I would say love. You got to really not only love your sport, <laughs> but love your players and you know the whole sort of bubble right that exists mm-hmm. in any sport: volleyball, tennis, football, you name it. Uh, I would say knowledge, because you do need to teach fundamentals. You know, I mean, if you, I think, asked a lot of you know sort of world class sports people. How did they get started? It was often somebody teaching them the proper way to swing the racket, or you know, if you're a, a you know, ski, take take that slalom gate as a skier, or you know, shoot a free throw, or whatever it is. So I think you do need that knowledge. I don't think there's any substitute for that. And then the third thing, and this maybe just me, I think coaches need a lot of energy, right? Because the season is long; it can be drawn out. You know, we all know not just games, you know athletes typically get up for a game but you got to get up for practice practice is you know as important i think in many sports as the game is and you know sometimes you all show up at practice and whether it's 85 football scholarship football players or you know whether you're an individual sport and you're kind of blah right and you need usually an external source to get you going and and i think energy is is mm. and I, I i look at you know a lot of coaches around professional and college sports but one coach that does this remarkably well is pete carroll the seattle seahawks coach i mean he's uh i think in his 70s or close to 70 or maybe already past 70 but you know he bounces around uh you know game time is which when when most people see him me included he bounces around like a 30 year old and i can only imagine it's the same thing in practice right that you know he realizes somewhere deep in his you know, in his constitution, sort of realizes the importance of bringing energy, even to a you know, a fifty-three professional football players who theoretically, right, it's their job and they should be motivated, you know, every day. But I think uh, love, knowledge, and 
and uh, energy are the three words that, that I would choose. Oh, fantastic. And energy is very dear to my heart, uh, you know, and I think with my background in, in professional sort of tennis coaching, often we're, you know, dealing with not that many players. Like every time I watch NFL, I'm like, oh, my goodness, the special team and the offense, defense, and, and bringing that energy day in, day out. I, You know, the champion mindset isn't how we respond on our best days. It's how we you know, get up, isn't it, in training and on our worst days and how That's we right. bring, That's bring right. that energy in the coach, no matter what's going on in your personal life as well. I think it's important to to draw that line in the sand. So thanks, thanks for sharing that. I, it's yeah, that's that's awesome. And our final official question, before, where we ask you to ask us a question, what's that one question that sparks Oliver Luck's curiosity? Well, that's a that's a good question. I I don't know if I can answer that. You know, just off the tip of my tongue, uh, I, I'd have to give you know a, a little thought to it. I've always been intrigued, you know, by these parallels between, you know, sport and business. And, you know, you've got uh, coaches, sport coaches who are often, uh, you know, called CEOs and they organize the program. I'm not sure. I know. Well, why is that different than a COO coach or a CFO mm-hmm. coach? Or, you know, because you got to manage, you know, at least at the professional level, all sorts of, you know, mm-hmm. salary caps and things like that. Um, so I, I suppose as I think about it now, the question I would ask, you know, a business person, and a coaching person is, could the two of you, could a head football coach at a power five school and the CEO of a you know, mid-sized company, you know, maybe a couple hundred million in revenue, could you swap, you know, <laughs> could you transfer, you know, could you take the, the yep. substantive knowledge of coaching yep. and running a business, whatever it is, real estate business, uh, you know, tech business, and could you swap that substantive information and both be as successful as as you are in your chosen fields. I, I'd be curious. I mean, it's obviously completely speculative. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I do think, you know, I've yeah. run into people in the business world who I think, oh my gosh, that would be an awesome coach, you know, mm-hmm. and vice versa, you know, in, mm-hmm. in the sports world, you, know, you run into people that would, would be great coaches. And I, mm. you know, I, I think of, uh, gosh, and his name escapes me, but he was a gentleman who founded Ameritrade, TD Ameritrade, what's now TD Ameritrade, and you know built it up into a hugely successful business and he was a football junkie and wanted to become a a a football coach and you know nobody would hire him right because you know he had spent 40 years in business or whatever uh anyway long story short he finally got an assistant coaching position i think at nebraska i think uh, his company was based in omaha and then he you know quickly moved up the ranks people recognized how talented he was and i think he coached for a number of years at coastal carolina did remarkably well was a younger program that was you know being built up now he's he's retired from coaching but is helping as sort of an executive director of football his name uh, oh joe moglia mm-hmm. uh, that's his name it just dawned on me and i always sort of admired him because he actually did both <laughs> you know yeah and uh, yep. i've had a chance to talk to him a couple of times over the years yeah uh, super guy very smart you know gets yeah. both business and sport and i think there's more of a connection than we probably all realize mm-hmm. well you've you've actually just sort of summarized the philosophy of the coaching podcast is to discuss the parallels and differences between sports coaches and business coaches. Sounds like I might have to get him on the show. I might have to do it. Joe Joe would be great. Yeah. Uh Yeah. LIA. He's I think still in, in uh, coastal Carolina with uh, some sort of official position, not the head coach, but you know, uh, uh, somewhere in the, in the, yeah, in their athletic department. He's a fascinating guy. Excellent. And he would, oh my gosh, he's, he's covered both at the highest level. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that's the little official section. So I'm going to handball to somebody I'm sure who's going to continue to unpick your fantastic brain. We're going to, yeah. Tina's going to join us. Awesome. She's, she's going to join us. Well, hello. Hello, Tina. How, How are you? Oh, long <laughs> you, time no see. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, great to see you. So I was upset the sliding doors moment wasn't like hiring me at one point, but you know, I, oh, guess, well, you know, that was, I was uh, close, close second, probably. I don't know. In interviewing a coach in Beaumont, right? I think didn't, didn't we meet in Beaumont? We did. We did. <laughs> we did. Louisiana. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, Louisiana, that's right across the border. Across the city. Oh, right. Oh, right. Texas. Sorry. Yep. Beaumont, Texas. Anyway. Yeah. Good to see you. Uh, uh, you know, it's interesting because I've obviously told Emma a lot about you and my, my time there. And I found it all really interesting since I have done other things since I left us, including coaching. But then um, now what I'm doing kind of on the opposite side of it in terms of the recruiting athletes to play collegiately and helping them. But I think, you know, when I look back at my time there, one thing that I really appreciated was the culture that you were able to create with the coaches because I, again, I can compare it to other places. And I, I felt like in a short amount of time, because you hadn't been there that long. Um, I don't think prior to me arriving, you know, how, how there was such a nice kind of group of coaches, including very, very successful, well-known coaches that normally maybe wouldn't pay attention to the women's tennis coach very much, but uh, yeah, that culture that you created sat with me. Yeah. How did you do that? Like, <laughs> Well, it's a it's a good question. I mean, you know, when I became athletic director, I, I had been, I think you remember this, had been on the board of governors at West Virginia University. So, you know, just doing that, you sort of stay in touch with the athletic programs and different sports and what's happening and how things are going and the conference affiliation, all that stuff. So I felt as though, you know, having been a student at WVU and having spent time on the board of governors and just being a fan, you know, the university and supporter, I kind of had an idea of what was going on in the department. And it seems to me that, you know, the athletic department is no different than the, you know, the law school or the chemistry department. Professors, right, coaches should interact a lot because I think there's things that, you know, one can learn from, you know, you can learn something from Bob Huggins and Bob <laughs> Huggins, as good of a coach as he is, can probably learn something from the golf coach or, you know, the, the, the baseball coach or whatever. Uh, so I, you know, you, you don't want to overdo it because you're certainly busy during your seasons and everything's, you know, everything's sort of season driven and then recruiting and all that. Uh, but I, I think there's some value in trying to, you know, get coaches together the way I viewed it. You know, I was sort of like the, the general, if you will, you know, and coaches were my, you know, two-star generals or my lieutenants and they had all the assistant coaches and student athletes below them. And that was sort of the best way, you know, to spread uh, the message of a, of a unified culture. You know, we also were going through something, you remember this very clearly, you know, we were going through something that not every school goes through, which is our old conference, the Big East, was sort of falling apart. And, you know, at one point there were only six <laughs> football schools left in the Big East. So we were, you know, very, very focused. I was certainly my president, Jim Clements, who's now the president of Clemson. We were like 110% focused on figuring out how we can remain relevant and get into a, what became a power five conference. And that conference shift affected everybody, mm -hmm. right? It affected football and basketball, just like it affected women's tennis and, and uh, the wrestling program and gymnastics, right? So 
um, I think uh, you know a certain level of solidarity was was required because some some coaches you know would would say I remember having this discussion with uh, Jill Kramer, the volleyball coach. You know, she said, "Wow, that's a lot of travel." <laughs> you know, because if you're in Morgantown, as you well know, Tina, you got to get the bus to go to Pittsburgh to the airport. Yeah. And on the way to Pittsburgh, you pass, you know, University of Pittsburgh, you pass Robert <laughs> Morris, you pass Duquesne, like schools you could be playing against. Yeah. But no, no, Jill had to fly out to Lubbock yep. you know, to play Texas Tech or to Baylor, you know, to Waco to play Baylor or, you know, to Austin to play the University of Texas. And that that's a different, you know, sort of coaching yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, setup. Right. So and I went through that with all the coaches. So I thought, you know, some coaches are going to have a more difficult time than others. For some, it's to step up in competition. I mean, look at Randy Mazing in baseball. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why I hired Randy because, you know, we needed a really good baseball coach to completely like pull up the quality of our baseball program because Big East baseball was yeah. sort of an afterthought. Big 12 baseball, you know, produces national champions, you know, every couple, three years. So that solidarity, I think, was important because everybody was facing in a different way, like a new reality. And that reality was, you know, the Big 12. Yeah. I mean, I remember when that change happened. I mean, there were a couple of things. I mean, I didn't have the travel schedule that basketball, volleyball has, you know. So, I mean, I remember seeing Coach Huggins after his first few weeks. He was like sleeping at his desk. I was like, I mean, they're just constantly on the road and volleyball, too, with the Wednesday evening games and everything. I was just worried about, oh, my gosh, how are we going to compete <laughs> against, you know, the Big 12 tennis is a huge jump up from from. Oh, uh, totally. Yeah. So, well, Baylor's got a great program. UT's got a great program. Oklahoma, right? Texas. Yeah. 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 So that 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 was my biggest challenge, not to travel so much since we only go home or away. We don't we don't go back and forth more than once. So, uh, yeah. And the other question I had is, you know, from my experiences in other places, too, is you know, one of my favorite sayings is the fish rots from the head down. And, you know, in terms of like when I had challenges and I went in with you to talk about it, you know, you're like, well, tell the girls to go watch basketball practice, you know, and this kind of thing. And sometimes there's such a big disconnect. They would just look at me and go, well, this is basketball. Like it's different. And I'm like, well, no, not really. It shouldn't be. And like that balance between coaching and, and, you know, with being tough, but also not being perceived as a jerk or someone that, you know, the, the coaching has changed over the years. I know when I played there, there was no feedback from the players. It was, you just do what you're told to do and that was it. And if not, see you later. Um, what are your thoughts on where that balance is um, and how it's changed over time? Well, the first thing I'll say is I think I encouraged your, your, your student athletes, your ladies to go watch basketball practice because by listening to coach Huggins, they could find ingenious new ways to use curse words, right? (laughs) In every form of the sentence, you know, noun, verb, adjective, adverb, whatever. No, but in all seriousness, it is kids today are different. I got four kids. uh, Three of the four did college athletics, football, volleyball, and soccer. Uh, So they all had different sports and it's a different world. You know, Um, you know, it's not the yes, sir, no, sir, that existed when I was, you know, playing college football and, you know, when you were playing uh, women's tennis. Uh, so, it, you know, there, there are, it's a different world. I think watching a guy like Hugs, who's tough as can be, because that's, that's how we grew up, but he loves his kids mm-hmm. and his kids will go into a foxhole for him if that's what it took. Right. Mm-hmm. And he has an unbelievable ability to be hard and tough and tell a kid point blank, you know, where he's missing out and he's got to do this better. He's got to work on that. But, you know, he also knows how to throw his arm around him after practice, you know, slap him on the butt, 
and I give them a word of encouragement. And, you know, I've seen this now for years, you know, they'll go into battle uh, with him. So it is changing. And, and, you know, the great coaches in college athletics, you know, I think of Nick Saban, who's a native West Virginian, they've changed with the time, you know, mm-hmm. they, they've had to change uh, with the time. You can't be Nick's age. You know, he was uh, an assistant coach, if you can believe this at WVU, uh, when I was a student athlete by freshman and sophomore year, which would have been 78 and 79, and nobody knew he was going to become the greatest coach ever in college football. But, uh, you know, he, he's had to adapt multiple times to different sort of attitudes that, that kids bring. And today, right. you know, today might be the most challenging time. You've got the portal that's opening up for kids who are disgruntled and want to leave and the yeah. coach doesn't like me, blah, blah, blah. You've got NIL money out there that kids want to chase. So um, you know, the adaptability of a coach, I think, is as important today as it's ever been. And I think you learn by, by you know, watching other coaches coach, just like when you watch, you know, professors teach or professors profess, you know, you, you learn you know, from them as well. Uh, and I, I tried to sort of bring that message because I saw it with my own kids, you know, that yeah. uh, it's, it's different. You know, it's, yeah. uh, kids, kids today have a different expectation of what coaches say to them and how they approach them and the sort of collaboration that coaches and players have. Yep. Yeah. I have obviously quite a few friends with kids that are, are, are athletes and, and one just signed with Georgia, my teammate from Georgia's son signed with Georgia. So that's been kind of fun. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Awesome. But what did you, you, so you had a kid playing soccer, volleyball and football and, and obviously to some extent you paid attention to the coaching and obviously also you're talking about guys and girls and there's maybe a difference in coaching boys and girls or men and women. Did you, how involved or how hard was it for you to not get involved, especially probably in the football being with your background, but you know, yeah. That's a, that's a good question. I, I tried not to get involved, um, you know, and it's easy in a sense. Once you say, you know, I'm not going to be involved, I'm turning my son or daughter over to coach so-and-so, you know, and I'll come watch the games. I'll cheer, uh, you know, when appropriate, you know, um, give solace when when appropriate to, you know, but, but you watch, obviously, and certainly with football because of my background, you know, I, I did early on when Andrew was a freshman at Stanford, he ultimately redshirted. Jim Harbaugh was in his second year, if I'm correct, at Stanford. And, you know, he thought they ended up redshirting Andrew. And I do remember Jim calling me up before the season started. And the redshirt rules were different then. He couldn't really play at all. And now I think he can play like three games or four games or something Mm. and then still get a redshirt, which leads to kids having like seven years of college eligibility. But anyway, you know, Jim called me up and he said, hey, um, you know, my coaching staff has a difference of opinion. Some of us think that Andrew should be redshirted. Uh, some of us think uh, he's ready to play. And I said, Jim, it's up to you <laughs> and your coaches. You know, don't, um, you know, if you decide that it's best for Andrew to redshirt, go do it. Yeah, that's fine. No complaints. I'll be 100% supportive if you decide that uh, you think he can play and, and help the team win games. You know, I'm 100% supportive of that. Your call. Um, he was clearly trying to, you know, get a sense of whether I would be like, you know, irate or supportive of one position and not the other. But I think, you know, parents have to, you know, turn their son or daughter over to the coach, so to speak, and trust that that coach, you know, knows what he or she is is doing. And most do. Uh, most yeah. coaches are very, you know, capable, and uh, you, know, you may not win a championship every year, but you know, you're going to learn good fundamental techniques. You're going to win, you know, games, matches, you know, meets, whatever it is. But you're also going to have fun, right? That's yeah. critical. You know, yeah. you if it, when a kid 
talks about, you know, to his mom or dad about, you know, his or her experience, you know, and, and lights up a little bit and has a smile. They've had fun playing. If it's sort of, a, oh my gosh, practice is so, you know, then you know that it's not going all that well. So with Andrew and our youngest, uh, who was a boy, played played soccer at Yale. And then Mary Ellen, our daughter, played volleyball at Stanford. They all had, I thought, very competent coaching, different experiences. You know, Ivy League's different than, you know, yeah. a Power Five school. Uh, but they all enjoyed it. I think all of them would do it again. I, I like to ask all the time when they were done with their sport, hey, if you did it over again, would you, you know, do football again for four years? Or Mary Ellen, would you play volleyball again for four years? And they all said yes. Yeah. You know, they give up certain things and it might be a little bit tougher academically and the travel, you know, and all that can be a pain, yeah. but they all, I think, enjoyed the experience immensely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's the big thing I try with. So uh, I don't even know if you know, but so I, ha I have a business that, like I said, helps athletes from all over the world. And, you know, initially it was more tennis and now I'm working with a few basketball players, which is a little scary. I probably need to give coach Huggins a call and find out what's, what this video is. This kid good, you know, pathway, collegiate pathway. I mean, you look in the Australian open finals, Tomorrow, Danielle Collins, who played for UVA, is in the finals. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you're seeing a lot more collegiate athletes in the tennis world playing in the Grand Slams and being successful. Obviously, it's a completely normal pathway in football and basketball, uh, obviously, sometimes only for a few years. But like you said, with your kids, and, and I feel the same way. It wasn't a perfect four years, but I do it all over again. And, and right, right. again, the networking and all the all the different experiences that you have that, that you realize – after the fact, like the free nutritionist, the free sports yeah. psych, I could use some of that. Oh, just, just, just the gym. The gym, <laughs> you know? yeah, the access. I mean, yeah, the yep. and then access to a physical, uh, you know, therapist or an athletic trainer when your niece you know, bothers you or whatever. Um, yeah, you know, the it's it's so fascinating now uh, because you know we are unique in this country with our universities, you know, doing incredible things with student athletes. It doesn't happen, as you know, and you know, Germany or, you know, China or, you know, Asia, you know, where there's great universities, but they don't you know, really sponsor these massive sports teams. They don't put a hundred thousand people in the stadium and yeah. generate, you know, $200 million for, you know, for a school in terms of athletic revenue. And I've always viewed it as hedging your bets, you know, compared to let's say what the Europeans do. And I know that because I lived over there for, you know, 10 years, if you're a talented soccer player, or, you know, look at look at Boris Becker, who started, you know, picking up a racket at age two. And by age 13, you know, he was a professional at 16. He's playing at Wimbledon or something. Right. Boom, boom. And, you know, um, he probably suffered in the long run from not having a high school or a college experience, mm -hmm. you know, because that's part of sort of what you need to do. You might have a bunch of money in the bank, but you may not sort of appreciate all those things that you learn to appreciate when you go through higher ed. So I always thought it was like a great hedge. You know, your, your son or daughter might be an incredible athlete at age 14 or 16. You might want to put that great soccer player in an academy that, you know, Bayern Munich or Man U or, you know, PSG or whatever, but they may not end up being, you know, the next Messi, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in the U.S. system, you can do that, right? You can play great tennis at Georgia or at Stanford or wherever, uh, and get a great education, you know. Yeah. And and if you're good enough to play tennis, more power to you. The the you know going back to the Boris Becker, Steffi Graf, they were sort of in one category. Obviously, unbelievable athletes. But the other guy who went to university and won Wimbledon was Michael Stich, and that's overlooked. It was a shock to the Germans that this guy would have played tennis, you know, sort of at the university just against his buddies and all that, but still was good enough 
you know, to win Wimbledon and, you know, to walk away with a, with a university degree. So I think our American system, you know, has that hedge and that's, that's good because, you know, as you know, it's, it's hard, very hard to be a professional athlete. Very few people have that opportunity and they need to rely, should rely on, you know, their education, which, you know, comes basically at, at no cost to them. Yeah. And the other thing, especially now, I, I, a lot of the schools are turning to allowing the kids to turn pro and come back and finish their degrees yeah. when that career ends. So, I mean, there's really, in my opinion, it's like a no brainer. I mean, go, if you're, if you're that good, because that's what I tell a lot of parents, if they're that good and they're winning everything, first of all, they're, they're the platform they're on is the, they're getting the tons right. of exposure. So in terms of, you know, endorsements and things like that, you can't have a better platform than the collegiate sport world really. And then, you know, if you're that good, leave like Tiger Woods did, like McEnroe did, you know, they didn't finish, yep. but you know, they, they kind of went through it and, and saw what it was all about. And then again, today, even more so because you can come back. I mean, so. yeah, I mean, it's, there, there's almost really no excuse <laughs> for a you know, professional athlete who spends a year in college, maybe two, like Tiger did, you know, no excuse for them not to come back. The university typically offers that at no cost. They typically have made enough money as professionals, you know, to pay the tuition anyway. Uh, but, you know, because you, you, you do, you know, there's a long life to live after, you know, your active career is over. You know, my Andrew had a great NFL career. He left when he was ready to leave, mm-hmm. um, but he probably could have played, you know, five or six or seven more years. Uh, but he decided he was done, you know, and he had his college degree. And, you know, he's doing, you know, lots of other things that are that are fun. So there is a long life to live you know, after your professional career is done. I mean, I, you know, professional athletics is tough. I don't care what sport it is. Mm-hmm. It's a grind. I'm amazed at guys like Brady and Federer and, you know, and others who've been around for so long. They, they all, they're almost, you know, alien in their sort of physical capabilities to stay sharp and fit and mentally with it, you know, after playing for 20 or 20 some year, that's, it just blows my mind. Yeah. yeah they're, they're the freaks. Of, they're definitely the freaks of the sports, you know, yeah. the other thing too, with Becker potentially is, you know, people that aren't getting educated at that level are not handling their money so well often either. At, well, yeah, they're Bork, Bork, there's a whole, there's a whole story. And yeah. his, you know, his challenges. And that's, you know, I, I don't want to say colleges for everybody, right. You know, I mean, a vocational school and other mm-hmm. programs are, are great for a lot of people, but you do, you know, those four years that you spent in college or I spent in college or I watched my kids. I mean, those are critical years and you know, they really mature. They learn, they get exposed to all sorts of other things that I don't think he would get exposed to if you were just, you know, uh, on an academy team and literally playing soccer four or five hours a day, right. It's, yeah. it's just a different environment. And that's, that's, I think, more or less healthy for the vast majority of people. Thanks so much, even just for this opportunity. I, yeah, already I can feel your your energy as well is is awesome. So um, well, thank you. It's, it's, nice, it's nice seeing the both of you, Tina. Great to, to catch yeah. up with it. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Enjoyed being on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure to bring you this episode on the coaching podcast. My name's Emma Doyle, and I'm a performance co-tour. That's coach and mentor. If you'd like to become a high-performance workplace coach, then check out www.emmadoyle.com.au and start your journey today. Thanks for listening.